What's going on, everybody? This is Black Men Sunday. I'm your host, Corey Murray, a show about gaining generational wealth, about wealth in general. And today's show is no different. We have Tony Bland on the line, and this is our Black History Month edition. By the way, if you haven't gone, you must tune in to last week's show with Dr. LeVon Bracey very emotional very powerful you must listen to that but today we have for our black history month spotlight tony bland this brother overlooked 36 billion dollars this brother is a wealth management executive this brother has financial advisors working for him he's an author with two books steps to financial fitness and money doesn't grow on trees so without further ado welcome tony bland to black men sundays thank you it's glad I'm glad to be here. It's um, a pleasure to talk to brothers. Always is, particularly as it relates to money, which is um, something I, I I play pretty well in. You know, I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, man, and um, for some reason, as a um, little kid, um, simple math came easy to me. You know, one plus one equals two. Two plus two equals four. And, and I could put together patterns. So I, I've always um, kind of naturally been comfortable with, with numbers. And uh, growing up in a single parent household, um, you know, the way I grew up, there were, um, my mother had four kids and we lived um, upstairs um, and her sister uh, lived downstairs and she had seven kids. She had seven, seven boys and um, we were three girls and me. And so those seven seven boys were like my my brothers, basically. So we all grew up together, 11 kids in a house with two single moms. We all were happy and everything was cool. But, you know, looking back on it and people would tell you, you know, you didn't, we didn't have a whole bunch of financial wherewithal, right? We didn't, we didn't have a whole bunch of money to do stuff. You know, we all, just like many of us Black folks, my mother was very uh, disciplined in how she approached things. And she was very... Um, cognizant of of dollars and and how she spent them and how she accounted for them and that type of thing so i think i kind of grew up with some of that in me you know over the years i found that my natural calling was drawn to money and how to uh, make it work to learn about it so i could go back and, and and show my my brothers and my sisters and other people neighbor how it works right because i was the first to go to college um of that group of 11 and um, and was able to you know go to UConn and get through UConn and all the time you're going back and sharing what you know and what you learn with family members and, and anybody that will listen, right? Just to fast forward, um, you know, there was a time in there where I ran my own company um, for a bit, ran my own investment company, uh, played in a lot of different arenas and then finally found my way into wealth management. Um, uh, as a financial advisor, and then uh, ultimately to, to lead an organization. Um, but, the, but the main thing, I, the, the key thing I hear is, you know, I think my mother, single mom, never made more than $33,000 in any year in her life. But when she retired, she retired uh, wealthy. And I can talk about a client that, you know, had $40 million and, and had plenty of money. She just made, um, got interest payments off of her bonds and she lived off of just the interest payments of her bonds. She was getting like half a million dollars a year off of her bond portfolio. Uh, but these two ladies, two different ladies, one black lady 
uh, from Mississippi, my mother, the other lady started her own company out of New York and became you know, financially wealthy. They both thought about the same things the same way. So what I've come to realize is that we're all the same. The key is the decisions we make around money. And if we can make decisions that allow us to um, grow our money faster than we spend it. And that's our problem as many kinds as, as Black folks, we, we like to spend. Uh, and sometimes we don't take the time and have the patience to see how money compounds and see how money can grow over time. And, and in some cases, it can grow really fast without taking a whole bunch of risk. And that's kind of an op opening. Um, um, and, and, um, and that's one reason why I wrote my, wrote my second book, which is named Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, um, because it doesn't. Uh, but we can learn how to grow it in a way that has impact on us um, in the future. Okay, okay, yeah, you kind of you kind of passed me a little bit. I've been even, you know, I wanted to introduce you as an author as well. This, this brothers wrote two books, um, Steps to Financial Fitness, and like he just said, money doesn't grow in trees. So talk to us about both the books, you know, the why did you want to write those books? You know, a brother writing financial books is pretty rare. So, you know, tell me the, uh, the impetus of that. Yeah, so the um, the first one was just for the reasons I, I shared. H having worked with some very wealthy people, um, you know, I realized that the things that they were doing, um, the average person could do, the average black person could do, could do the exact same thing, but we didn't know how. We don't know how to do it because no one's told us how to do it. No one's educated us. No one said, "Hey." You know, in high school, they don't teach you how to manage money. They don't teach you how to manage your finances. They don't teach you how to bounce a checkbook. That's why I wrote the first book, uh, which basically is a, a way to, it's, you know, six steps to manage, to be able to manage your money uh, and manage your financial advisor if you have one. The second book was um, Money Does Grow on Trees is a play on what my mother used to tell me as a kid. You know, when I wanted something, she said, boy, money doesn't grow on trees. I heard that a lot, right? And so... You know, that, that second one is more of a, a children's book about money and how a, a child can be taught how to understand money in its simplest form. So, for example, if you think about money, either you have you, you get money or you give money. That's really our whole system. Either you get it or you give it. And so trying to help people understand if I give you a dollar, that's it. However, I give it to you, whose money grew? Well, actually, mine grew because you gave it to me and you went, you lost a dollar, I gained one. So, that's yeah. right. And that's as simple as money is. And the people with the most money understand that. So a lot of times what we do, if you think about it, so every time we go and do something and we're giving up money or handing that credit card or handing that debit card, every time we do it, we're decreasing our money. And the other person on the other side's money is gaining. It's really that simple. So the key in life is to be on the other side of that to have money coming to you, being given to you by other people. So that can be by you selling your services, you know, selling a product. It could be, you know, um, doing somebody a, a, a favor or, or whatever it is. The key is to do that and then allow what, what costs you to get that money to be less than what the money is. So in other words, if you use a credit card, don't use a credit card to buy stuff that doesn't bring you money back. And often we use credit cards to do all kinds of stuff. My deal is if you're going to use a credit card that's going to, it's going to cost you 10%, you better have put it in something, put that money in something that's going to get you 15%. And that's the, that's the ticket. 
somebody had a 400 year head start on us. So we, some of those principles we don't pick up on, but that's what everybody else is, is doing in society. And, and the sooner we figure out that we have to flip that script and as hard as it is, particularly if we start making new money, we want to get that, that nice crib, that nice big crib. And we want to get, um, you know, those, those nice cars. And before you know it, we're looking around and the, the credit man is knocking on our door, trying to repossess something or telling us our credit score is bad. You know, when our role in, in, in this generation of people is to set up the next generation. And, and we got to because we're 400 years behind, right? So if we're 400 years behind, it's going to take a long time to even, you know, make a dent in that gap. And so all of us have to make a sacrifice to position the next generation to be in a better position and teach them how to continue moving that thing forward. But we don't get there by spending more than we're earning. And, um, and that's, that's one of our challenges. So that's why I'm in the business. I'm in the business because I, I well, although I add value to it, I, I learn from it. And then I can take the things I learn and share them with, with folks, um, uh, black folks in particular. Gotcha, gotcha. And you mentioned, you know, you mentioned generational wealth, and that's, you know, one of the core causes of doing this Black Man Sunday. So, you know, as a Black man, what tips or advice would you give as far as achieving generational wealth and, you know, making sure that our kids in the next generation has something to look forward to? I, I say um, one of the first bit of advice I got was, um, be okay with your money growing slowly because we all want it to come really fast. And sometimes we don't know how to make it grow fast. So then we just say, okay, I got it. So let me spend it. But you got to be okay with turning it over and being methodical about it. So I'll give you a couple examples. I'll give you two examples. One, I'm going to give you on my son who's 17, but then I'm going to talk about me when I was 21, 22. And then hopefully somebody can grab something from it, right? So when I was 23, I just finished at Carolina. So I go and, and um, buy my first house. So that first house I bought um, cost me about $50,000. It was just a little condo. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't in no great neighborhood. It was just a little condo, 50,000 bucks. And, you know, I always looked at real estate as an investment that you turn over as opposed to something you live in for 30 years. And it was in Massachusetts and I wanted to move out to LA, but I didn't have any liquid money. So what I did was I, I took that, that house and I refinanced it and took $14,000 out of $14,000. So now I got, now think about it. Now I got 14,000 in cash. Oh, and by the way, the $50,000 house only cost me 5,000 to get it, right? I had to put 10% down, right? So now I took 14 out and I got a, a house now that's worth like 70. So I still got the house. So I take the 14 grand and I move to Los Angeles and I find another condo in Los Angeles. And it cost me basically $12,000 of that 14. So I, you know, I kept two grand on that and, and threw 12 into that next crib. So now if you follow me, I, I lived in LA for a few years and I sold the first crib, got a little bit of cash out of that. Then I sold the crib in LA because values went up. So when, so buy low, sell high. Right now, real estate is popping all over the country. It's popping. And people are still holding on to their cribs, right? But now it's kind of topped out. It's kind of gotten real high. And that's when you that's when you sell. You get your get the cash out because you can do something with the cash. So so I sold my crib, the crib in LA, 
ended up with maybe 50 grand. I moved to Orlando, Florida. I bought a crib over in, in Dr. Phillips. I only had to put, of the 50, I only had to put 28. So I kept that house for a while. And then I sold that house and bought a, another house in Dr. Phillips that was three times the value. Then I sold that house and took that money out and bought a house in Charleston, South Carolina. I moved to Charleston, did the same thing. And, and then I ended up going back to Fort, going to Fort Lauderdale. Now, to give you a perspective, that $50,000 house and that first $5,000 I had I put into it ends up being a multi-million dollar house. And I never had to put more money into it. I used the original, that first 14 grand I pulled out is what created this other house, this, this one on, on the back end. So, but that happened over a long period of time. And that's what I'm talking about. You grow rich slowly, you grow rich methodically over time by making very calculated steps and having discipline while you do it. So for example, each time when I did that, when I knew I had to go and get a loan, I said, okay, I, oh, I want a car though, right? I wanted a car a couple of times in that, in that cycle, but I realized, okay, don't buy the car till after I get the house. Because if I get the car first and I got my nice wheels, that's going to impact how the bank looks at my credit and my ability to pay the loan. So because people don't care, they'll sell you any kind of car anytime, right? They don't really care what the hell your credit score is. They don't care if you got money or not. But they care when you buy that when you buy that house. And again, the house is for an investment. It's not necessarily to go live in the thing for 30 years, like our, like our parents wanted to and aspired to. But they were closer to that 400-year gap, right? So they were just coming out of really, really tough times, right? They were born in, my, parent, my parents were born in the 30s, right? So they're coming out of tough times. So they would be more conservative than I am. So over time, you can, you can make that money grow. And, that, and, and you still be alive and still young and spry and be able to do what you got to do, you know, and have fun. But over time, you let that thing build up, it accumulates. So that's one story. The second story I want to tell you is about my son now, who's 17. So we, we're, in, we just, we're in a pandemic and, and it's been rough for the last 18 months or so, right? So I, I tell my son and have told him before the pandemic started, hey, be aware of what's going on around you and realize whatever you like, your generation is going to like it 30 years from now. Just like the things I liked when I was 10 or 12 or 15, I still like. So I, I tell my son to look at what's going on around you and make decisions about that, have conviction. So Last year, right after the, the, the pandemic started, he called me, I was out of town and he texted me and said, hey, dad, we should buy this stock. And I didn't know what it was. He, he told me the name of it. I didn't know what it was. I said, what is, I try to look it up, I try to Google it. And I'm in the business, right? I try to Google it. Like it didn't give me anything. He said, there's a lot of companies with the same name. I said, send me a screenshot because I put on his phone a stock tracker. So he's paying attention to his stocks just on, with an app. So he sends it to me and I look it up and I said, oh, okay, this is interesting. So I looked it up, I said, so how much you want to buy of it? He said, I don't know. So I said, okay, I'm going to buy some and put it in your account and your sister's account, his older sister's account. And so we bought it at $100 a share. This was last year, $100 a share. And that was in like April. In June, July, it had gone up to $160 a share. And I said, okay, it started coming back down. I said, you want to sell it? He said, no, I want to hold on to it. I said, okay. We ended up selling it in November at almost $500 a share. So we made 400% on that money. So if I put 25 into that, that 25 was 100 in six months based on a 
16-year-old's recommendation. The name of the stock, Zoom is the name of the stock. And everybody's using it, but who the hell's investing in it? So this kid, 16-year-old, said to me, hey, dad, let's buy this thing called Zoom. I'm like, what the hell is that? I didn't know what it was. I said, why that? He said, oh, when they closed up our schools and told us to go home, they told us to use this platform. And I said, so I called his older sister up and said, hey, do you know what this is? She said, yeah. Because she was in college at the time. She's graduated last year in the spring. She said, well, when they told us to go home, they told us to use this platform. So I said, okay, my kids got it. That's the next generation. That's intergenerational. So by showing them, telling them what's on your mind and what you're thinking about, because often we don't tell our kids how we think and what we look at, he's giving me recommendations that end up benefit his portfolio and mine too, and his sister's. Me being 20, 20, 23 and him being 17, that's, and that gap is you know, over 40 years of the same kind of mindset of being aware of what's going on, you know, making investments and um, understanding that money will grow over time. Now, we sold it at just shy of $500, pocketed that money. Now, you know, it's okay, what are, you, what are you gonna do with it next? And that's my next question to him. So now what do you wanna do with it? And since then, he's been still, he's been chill. He's like, okay, I'm just gonna chill out for a minute. I said, okay. So another thing I would say is, you teach the next generation what's going on. So in the pandemic, what stopped? What stopped was airline flights stopped. Entertainment and leisure. Entertainment and leisure. People going to Disney stopped. Um, cruise lines stopped, right? And what, and what accelerated? Electronic purchasing. People doing stuff without having to leave the house. So if I look at it and say, okay, well, if airlines stop, but they got to come back, right? When the pandemic's over, people are going to fly again. So what happened to the value of airline stocks? They all dropped. What happened to the value of Disney? It stopped, went down. Concept, buy low, sell high. Don't buy when it's high, buy when it's low. So if you go in and buy JetBlue, when it dropped from 20 to six, no one is going to get back to 20. You buy it at six and ride it back up through the pandemic until it gets back up. And oh, by the way, you say to yourself, well, who makes the planes that JetBlue, South, Southwest, and everybody flies? Oh, it's Boeing. So their value must have went down too. So let me get some Boeing. Then, oh, well, who supplies Boeing? People that make parts. Oh, their value goes down too. So when you see things happening in this society and the economy, you wait to stuff bottoms out, and then you go in and you ride it back up and you get the hell out. And then you redeploy your capital to something else that's suffering. So by helping using our knowledge of living and translating it to a company and a situation in the economy, whether it's bad or good, you make decisions and you teach the next generation how to do that. And then you empower them to do it. And then they're starting, my son's starting off at 17, who was 16, he just turned 17, 16, making these kinds of bets. But I didn't start making those bets until I was in my 30s. Right. So, you know, I think that education piece and, and, and sharing what we know, even if we don't think we know that much, sharing what we know, and what we're experiencing with the next generation helps drive that intergenerational wealth, along with concepts like, you know, buy low, sell high, collect early, pay late. If it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, you know, back in our day it was, you know, don't try to stay with the Joneses, you know, even though there are a lot of Joneses in our neighborhood. It was constant. Don't try to stay with the Joneses. Don't get it. Don't get a new car every year like some of us do. Okay. Well, now you don't hit a couple. You know, a couple of points that I kind of want to touch on. You know, you spoke on um, real estate. 
You spoke on investment stocks, for example. But let's go back to the real estate. Real estate sounds good. I hear brothers making money doing it, but I don't have the money for that. I don't have the money to go buy a property, buy a house. Um, what tips would you give you know, a brother that feels that way? I'd say get with another brother or a sister and combine your, combine your resources and go do it. One of the things that happens in, in, um, uh, with Black folks, and, and you see it in, um, you see gentrification, where you know, white folks go in and they buy properties, and the Black folks who live in, in these properties that were generational, they sell them because they want that cash, you know, and then, you know, as, as some say, well, then all the Black folks are displaced out of a community, right? And then we complain about it. You know, when I first moved to D.C., that was one of the things that a number of Black folks I came in contact with were complaining about gentrification going on in D.C. My mind goes to, well, okay, so you see it happening. It's happening right in front of you. So why don't you get together with some other brothers and sisters and, and go get your piece of it? But see, the problem with us is we want to be, we wanna, we're going to find out who's in charge. And we ain't going to trust each other. And we're going we're gonna to get caught up in things that don't matter. See, other folks do business for the business sake not for the emotional connection with one another. They say, okay, here's a transaction we can do. Let's just put, you know, some structure around it. If we're talking real estate, let's put structure around it. You've got five cent, I've got five cent. We only need seven cent to buy the property. I can't get it on my own. Let's put it together and go and get it. And just, you know, on paper, you get a contract that says, hey, if, if it goes down, we got to dissolve, it's going to get dissolved this way. And then you go get that piece and you watch it go up because all these neighborhoods you see where, you know, you see other folks going in them and buying houses and re redoing them. And we know what's going to happen. It's happening right in front of our face. So I'd say, you know, for an individual that can't get, you know, it individually, you got to pull your resources together. And at the, at the, at the high level, um, at the highest level, I'm going to talk, you know, a concept of, that what other people is called private equity. So what, what private equity is, particularly in real estate, is basically some guys coming together, pooling their resources, and they go and buy large commercial properties, like you know, big buildings downtown, or they go buy large apartment complexes. They pool their money and they, and they do this. And then they get some investors to throw up money and they tell the investors, we're gonna give you so much back in this time frame, in these seven years, you're gonna get X amount back. So we have to get the concept of, you know, and we, we, we'll say it takes a village, but we don't invest as a village. We say it takes a village, right? To raise, a, you know, we, we, oh, we got all these nice lines, but we got to take that same concept and say it takes a village to create wealth because individually we might not have enough to do it on our own. So maybe that's, maybe, maybe, maybe we just made up something. Maybe we just made up something. It takes a village to create wealth. Transitioning from it takes a village to raise a family so it takes a village to create wealth. We just came up with something. One thing I noticed about us black folk is we're competitive. It's that's my money. No, yeah. you you know what I mean? So, you know, how do we take that village to build wealth? And then once the wealth is built, when it's you know uh being divided, it also divides those relationships. So yeah. you can touch on that as well. Yes, yes. So that happens all the time with everybody. And, and what I suggest to people, um, what I learned um, personally, because my mother passed away, um, she had accumulated something. And so I've got, you know, three siblings, right? And, and I'm the one in the financial business. So it created, a, a, you know, a conflict. But what I learned 
every one of us as siblings, everyone believed that they had the best relationship with that parent. They don't understand your relationship with that parent and you don't really understand theirs, but you got opinions about it. So that's when you get in conflict because everybody thinks they know what they would want. Well, grandma would have wanted this or mom would have wanted that. Dad would have wanted this, but that's based on their personal relationship with them. And it could be different with the other kid or grandkid, right? So my thing is what's best is if the patriarch or matriarch, the person that has that wealth, has a family meeting before they pass away, has a family meeting with everybody there, if not when they, not after, but before, before they die, when they're still in good health. Now, and we don't do this, by the way, but this is what my suggestion is, whether a black person or white folks, because white folks fight over money too. Everybody fights over money. And what I find is the thing to do is have that meeting ahead of time. And then that patriarch or matriarch sits there with everybody around in a circle and says, hey, y'all, here's the deal. It's my money. I'm going to put so-and-so in charge of it. Why am I putting so-and-so in charge of it? Because so-and-so understands this better than the rest of y'all. And they got less conflict. So when I'm gone, I've written up my, my will or my trust, and their job is to execute it. They're not going to do something that's not on my paper, that I put on paper. They're going to execute what's on paper. So when they start doing it, don't be getting mad at them. They're going to do the job I told them to do. And it's on paper. They're not making it up as they go. So trust what they're doing. And if you get mad at anybody, get mad at me for not leaving your ass more money. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So, you know, when we talk about generational wealth, where does real estate stack up on the list? Because I see a lot of guys, oh, I'm going to just buy stocks. I don't, I'm going to just do stocks only. How important is real estate in building generational wealth? That's a great question. And you made me think about, um, I had a client, black woman, and, um, and had a you know, good sized family of siblings. And the mom and the, her, her mom and dad had accumulated real estate. Their dad had been buying real estate, apartments, and things like that for years. And the dad uh, on his deathbed told her and, and her siblings, hold on to this real estate. This real estate, they don't make any more of it hold on to it. So now fast forward, and this is like in 2000, right? So what I would be saying to her and, and her siblings is, hey, so let's think about it for a second. You're, you're, you know, as Black folks in that generation, the generation behind us, that generation felt that what they could grab is some real estate, right? They didn't have the knowledge of stocks and, and, and other kinds of investment, generally speaking. They, they knew real estate, right? And so they accumulated, some of them accumulated some real estate. So, you know, her dad gave her really good advice. But the question is, real estate has a, has a value. So let's say the real estate's worth, you know, a million dollars. You never say a dollar's worth so much real estate. It's worth a million dollars, right? So is your dad saying to you, hold on to the brick and mortar and the wood that is on top of some dirt? Or is the dad saying, don't lose this million dollars. I think the dad's really saying, don't lose the million dollars. Take the million dollars and grow it, either through more real estate or through some other investment vehicle. So, I, I, so for me, it's, you know, and it could be all more real estate. And, and one, one person that, you know, I, and I'll give you an example, a person who, who did more real estate that, you know, I, I'm not getting political or anything or anything else, but Donald Trump, right? 
His father had accumulated all these apartment complexes. He was a, you know, a slum landlord, right? Dogged out black folks in all these apartment buildings he owned in New York. He was in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, tough areas. His dad was, and his dad had this real estate empire. And what did, what did, what did his son do? His son said, I'm going downtown of Manhattan. And his dad said, no, 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 no. Don't go downtown of Manhattan. But his son said, no, I, his son had a different vision. Still real estate though, right? And his son said, I'm going to go downtown to Manhattan. I'm going to buy some big buildings downtown. He finagled and found a way to buy, I think it was uh, one of the old um, ports, port authorities or, or bus bus structures where they had all the buses, the, um, what do they call it, a terminal. He bought some stuff with a building on top of it. And for him, at least, you know, he's done some stu stupid stuff, and but it translated to more wealth, which he got casinos, which he messed up and, you know, and doing all other kinds of stuff, right? So to me, real estate, just like money, just like stocks, just like bonds, just like anything, you know, you can buy a car and it can be older. You can sell it for more if it's a, you know, a classic, right? So whatever it is, the, or painting, it's just, it all goes back to its value. And I think, you know, so real estate is great, but in 2008, real estate values went down for the first time in the history of the world, it dropped 30%. Plus, people were in the upside down in their mortgages because they got mortgages and then real estate values dropped. And so then people's mortgages were higher than the value of the real estate, right? So nothing's guaranteed. The key is buy low and what? Sell high. That's it. So when, when I was uh, younger and I used to go and hang out, I could still hang out a little bit, but when I was young, we used to go, we used to go to the party at midnight and the party be just giving it a jump off, right? And it's hot, you know, that's when, you know, everybody's rolling. So in investing, it's like when it's hot and it's popping and you go to that party and, you know, the women are there and, you know, stuff's happening. In investing, that's when you leave. You leave that party because it's got saturated. You leave that party and you go to the party where there's nobody there. And nobody would naturally do that. No one would naturally go to where it's hot and exciting and popping and go to where nobody showed up. But that's investing. Whether it's real estate, stocks, bonds, or whatever, you go where there's nowhere, nobody's at. Because eventually, if it's a good, good thing, it's gonna go up. And then when it becomes that hot party and you're sitting on top of that party, and you're the person that put the party together, you're playing the music and people start popping in and, and it's getting crowded and it's getting hot and people are talking about it as, you know, the reputation is hot. So you get the hell out. You sell that shit and you go. You take your cash and you deploy it somewhere else where it's low, where nobody's showing up and you ride it back up. And you just do that with discipline back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, as long as you can and pass on that knowledge to the next generation. Hey, I've really appreciated your time on uh, on the call today. I am a up and coming uh, financial advisor uh, myself. I don't manage quite as much as you do yet, uh, <laughs> but I would like to, you know, when they get there. Um, yeah. But I mean, everything that you said today was what I I ultimately preach. Um, I, I mean, how do you when you're sitting across the table and you're talking to people because you know near and dear in my uh, to my heart is helping those in the wealth accumulation phase. Because if you can't get past that phase, there's nothing to preserve and there's nothing to distribute. 
So when you're talking to somebody and you're trying to convey to them, hey, the importance of making sure that you have a uh, emergency fund, I'm sure that you you talk of those things and, and things of that nature, as well as um, different investment strategies. What I mean, how do you get? And I, I don't I don't know if you still deal with those clients that are you know accumulating wealth yet. But how when you began your career did you get them to see and want and get them to take that step forward, that next step forward. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, if you're, if you're in the business, you understand it's a, um, it's a, it's a tough business. Yeah, it is. It's really tough. And, um, and a lot of people won't want to invest with you or, or um, and everybody has their own way of thinking about stuff. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. and so what it boils down to is really um, in, in my opinion is finding the niche of people who trust you. Okay. Developing an approach to get people to trust you and then be very disciplined about what you position the people. No, no, no get rich quick schemes. No um, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It's yeah. grow rich slowly. And, yeah. and there are plenty of examples to show people. Sometimes you got to bring a third party in mm -hmm. to demonstrate. Yes. So they can say, oh, okay, objectively, here's what this person is doing and they'll share with you what they're doing. But the key is trust and you being, I say more conservative than not. You can get people, I've had financial advisors. Now I've got financial advisors that, that work for me. I'm not a financial advisor anymore. Okay. Uh, even though I give advice to people, but I'm not in the business. I, I run the business now. And so, but what you find is people are just dying to have somebody they, they can trust. I had a, um, I got uh, somebody sent a, a doctor, a black doctor to me here in DC. And you know, she got her own practice and she, um, and I did a, a, a Zoom with her first before I decided which financial advisors I was gonna introduce her to. So in talking with her, you know, got her to confide that she didn't know what she had. She just did what people that she knew told her to do. Right. She had different products, but, she didn't have any allegiance to the person, the advisor. And right. so, but I was, I'm able to, I guess, communicate in a way where the person trusts me enough to tell me the truth. And I think you got the same skill. If you're on this line with, with this group, you know, you've got the skill. So you just got to slow it down a little bit and get more opportunities at bat because yeah. in some of those opportunities won't show up again for six months or a year or five years. Mm, That's why okay. you got to have, it's a numbers game, right? You got to have yep. more at you at bat and you got to find a way to get more people to talk to with a focus on people that trust you or can trust you i don't want to take up i've, I've got a lot i mean we may have to get offline I, uh corey's very good at you know putting the information on how to reach out to somebody it may be an offline type yeah, question i don't want to hog, hog the, the the line up um, go ahead brother I, go ahead brother go ahead as to what he's saying with regards to real estate i've done a couple of one or two wrong and I have done one right, right? And to couple with what, what you're saying is you've got to know the rules behind it. There's a tax, there's all kinds of tax ramifications. Like, and I was telling the guys, if you own a business or if you own real estate, those are, that's how our founding fathers kind of positioned it. If you do though, if you've got that thing and you know the rules behind it, you're going to win with money. And so, you know, Yes, you were right. You, you hit it spot on when you said our my, my parents preached this to me. You know, you get in the house, you know, I just bought another home. 
And they were like, well, why are you doing that? You know, you need to get somewhere and you need to sit down. Don't go and buy another house. Don't you, you see what I'm saying? You got to pay it off. Well, no. Mm-mm. And you, you see what I'm saying? What do you want to do? And I've, I've been learning that the only time in, and I'm an accountant by, by trade, you know, and on accounting on the uh, a house is an asset. But from a business perspective, it's negative cash flow unless it's making you money, you're, you're collecting rent or you sell. That's the only times that it makes sense. The other times it's a liability because you're constantly having to you pay mortgage, fix it up when it breaks and everything like that. So where do you want to have your wealth at the end of the day? And, and think about this, house? to your point, to your point, mm-hmm. and let's say, and then you die. Yeah. So if you die and the house is paid off, or if you die and there's still a mortgage with it, the value of the house is the same. Same. So I will never personally die with a house paid off. Exactly. My and, and Mr. Bland, now, my dad. And, and, like and to I, your point, and to your point, let me let me just finish to your point about cash flow because I'd rather use that money for something else than to pay off a whole house. Absolutely. You know, years because I could deploy that capital somewhere else. I could still have the real estate and have a mortgage on it, and it goes up uh-huh. in value. Right. The debt won't go up. Right. The value of the house will. And I can deploy some of that cash instead of paying up. People say, pay off your house quick. Pay it. No. Double down on the payments. For what? No. Take that other oh. money and put it somewhere else. Right. And, and you, you never, ever put. That's balanced. Right. And you never put 20% down. You pay whatever the program that you, you're if, whether it's conventional loan, FHA, USDA, you only put the minimum down. You don't put all your cash reserves no. into a home. You never do that. So and, and I learned that from liquidity uh, is a mortgage other issue that a lot of folks don't understand liquidity and just keeping some something liquid that you can do, you can turn over real quick. Real quick. Yeah. Real quick. So anytime. But we can talk again. Yes, sir. Appreciate your time. Um, my question is, what did you how do you feel about um cryptocurrency as an investment? short-term, long-term, things like that. Uh, that's so funny. Um, you know, um, money's always been crypto. Money is crypto, but there's a piece of paper to represent it because if you think about it, if you think about the, the fiscal money you put into the bank isn't there. There's, the, there's no more this big door with a circle thing on it. You see the movies, you open it up and cash is sitting in there. That shit doesn't exist. All money is electronic, but for purposes of bartering, we got these pieces of paper or, or that piece of plastic, right? And you know that plastic, it, it, that's definitely electronic, right? So money is crypto. The difference now with, with Bitcoin, the, the only difference is it was someone created a coder, created it without it being backed by a bank or a government. It's just not backed by a bank or backed by the government. So when you think about life, you know, and you see stuff happening in society where people get tired of, you know, like this, you know, the younger generation is tired of being constrained by, you know, corporate America and and and, and the um, Uncle Sam looking over you or Big Brother looking over you or, or the government. You know, there's a whole groundswell of action against all of that, right? So for those folks, that Bitcoin is is a cool way to just move money around and purchase. It's just another barter of exchange, right? But because it doesn't have a stability point like a bank or like a government, it's more volatile and it's not regulated. So it's an unregulated thing. Um, But some people will make bets on it. 
thinking, you know, it, it might go, but really it's just, it's really not, in my opinion, it's not an investment. It's just, it's, it's, it's just like a dollar. It's just like a dollar. It's just a medium of exchange. And some people will say, hey, I read something where uh, the first person that did a transaction with Bitcoin was a guy out of New Jersey who said, okay, he had Bitcoin, quote, and he put on the internet, hey, I've got 10,000 Bitcoin. Can somebody give me two pieces for this Bitcoin? And there was another guy that said, sure, I'll jump on it and took the 10,000 in Bitcoin from him and called a pizza shop in New Jersey and had two, a Papa John's or somebody had two pizzas sent to him. And so at that time in that transaction, because it was $30 for the pizza, the Bitcoin was worth a, thir a third of a cent. You know, it's, the value is what it, whatever you're willing to pay for it. So it could be worth something, it could be worth zero. But without that stability point, somebody who's conservative, and I, and I consider myself, you know, conservative, not ultra conservative, not conservative politically, but from a financial standpoint, like I said earlier, I, I say you grow rich slowly, you know? You know, I tell my 16, 17 year old, hey, what do you want to invest in? He tells me, I do it, buy it for 100, sell it for five. That's pretty damn good in six months. And I, and I, and I can see and touch, and I'm doing right now what, what we invested in. But I can't see, I, for me, and I, you know, and it's, but I think it's my, my daughter, my daughter's 23. She says, dad, you know, you need to look at Bitcoin. She, you know, she's telling me that, but that's, that's her generation. So I might be, hey, you do that, but dad ain't doing that shit. Does dad know how to make money in a more conventional way with the back, with somebody backing that thing? If it, if something goes wrong and, and the government has made a guarantee on a bond or, or some other vehicle, um, that I've invested in, I'm going to get my money back. But I got no guarantees I'm going to get my money back messing around with some electronic currency. But again, that's I'm more conservative, right? And I could have that bet 100% wrong. But I'm but the bet I'm making is I don't need the money associated with that, even if it did go, you know, go up or whatever. And you could get more for it later on. I I I don't you know I don't I don't have a need for for that. I don't need to take that risk to get that potential when that potential isn't guaranteed, isn't, isn't highly, is, in my opinion, isn't as likely, it's too volatile for me. Thank you. That's just one person's viewpoint though. Hey, I appreciate you, Tony, being on the show, Black Men Sunday, I appreciate your time. Appreciate you spending some time out for us, giving us some knowledge. Um, one last thing I'm gonna share, share with you guys, I appreciate you guys, this is good what you're doing, Corey, keep it up. And um, this thing is, this, this world, is, it's a lot going on, right? But 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 black folks need to know, and there's thirteen. Uh, we're 13% of the population, and we're we we getting this this um, pivot point where we have the moral high ground, and it's that moral high ground in terms of who leads is shifting it from you know people that have dollars are leading because the the power of the dollar they can buy and move things, but morality and and what comes out of our minds based on how we've grown up and what we've lived, the resilience, the foresight, the vision, the creativity, being able to get, we can get more out of a rock than anybody else, other than maybe Native Americans. Balancing that piece, it can allow the 13% to lead the 87%. And that's ultimately where we want to go. Yes. Looking at the bigger picture, the 13% of the population, which is African-American, if we focus on some things, we can lead the other 87% of the country. And we can do that with the moral high ground while also making money. And last thing I'm gonna say is, 
3500 BC. 3500 BC, when the first known writing occurred, the first known writing occurred, 3500 BC, um, story goes, it was an IOU. It wasn't a poem, wasn't a love story, wasn't a love note, it was an IOU. People been bartering back and forth BC before Christ, and it ain't gonna change. So jump in it, figure it out, grow rich slowly, and um, pass on what you learn and what you know to the next generation. And, and I think we'll all be better for it. So thank you guys. Appreciate you, Corey, for inviting me. Thank you, Tony, for pulling up the Black Men Sundays. We appreciate your time, man. Thanks for dropping the jewels. You had me reconsidering my situation. I'm thinking I'm gonna live in my house for 30 years. Now I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I should make some money off of this. So with that said, this is another Black Men Sundays, and we out. Check it.